I'm going to read to you a portion of Scripture out of John chapter 4 for a few moments. It's a familiar text, so you probably know it so well. It might be good to just listen to it. You can go ahead and find it in your Bibles if you like, but the lights are pretty dim, and my mom always said that I shouldn't read when the lights are really, really dark, so you may want to just use this time as a time of meditation. I'm just going to spend a few moments with you um, sharing from the Word about worship, and then we're going to get right back into worship. You know, a lot of times we, I think, reverse it in that we sing first, and then we get into the Word, when oftentimes the Word instructs us how to worship. Not that worship is just singing. It is much more than that, and one of these days I'd love to do a whole series on worship. But John chapter 4 is a set of texts that is to me of primary value when it comes to worship. I think it's the most important chapter and text in all of the Bible regarding true worship. God is about finding worshipers. Now listen carefully. The very apex, climax, and purpose of redemptive history is worship. The very reason Jesus died on the cross was to get non-worshippers to have a relationship with His Father so that they might be true worshippers. Jesus will say in this text, the Father is seeking, actively looking for those to worship Him and to worship Him in spirit and truth. We've crafted a three-word purpose statement. That isn't just a set of clever words because every church ought to have one, but because we feel it is absolutely the biblical worldview for any Christian, for any group of Christians. Upreach, and then inreach, and then outreach. You've heard me say those words time and time again over this last, what is it, ten and a half, eleven months. Upreach. My relationship on a vertical plane upward toward God. Everything, absolutely everything, is determined by that. Because you see, to love God is to love God's people. And to love God is to love the world for whom Christ died. So when you have a relationship that is solid and biblical and right with your Creator, with your Savior, you're going to automatically love God's people. If you have a problem loving God's people, you have a problem loving God. If you have a problem evangelizing, you have a problem worshiping. Because all of them are tied to that. Well, in John chapter 4, and let me just read this to you. Jesus left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. He came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came by to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food, and the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? 
For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. But Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? I got I got to pause at that. Imagine asking that to God. Who do you think you are? Are you greater than Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and livestock? And Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman said, I have no husband. Jesus said, You have well said I have no husband. Now, I'm going to get back to that text. But let me just say that um, one of the saints from the past named A.W. Tozer made a statement. He wrote this down, and he said it to the churches he spoke at. He was We love his writings. I don't know if you know much about A.W. Tozer. He's one of the best Christian authors around. He wasn't much liked when he spoke because he was a fiery kind of a guy. Now that he's dead, everybody loves to read him. But when he was alive, a lot of churches wouldn't stand him. And he said something. He said, worship is the missing jewel of the evangelical church. It's the missing jewel. And you know he's right. If you go into the average Christian bookstore, you find precious little written about worship. You find a lot written about outreach and how to reach the world for Christ, which is important. We're here to be salt and light. There's a lot written about discipleship and how we ought to have small groups and be with each other and love each other and encourage each other and how to have Christian marriages and Christian diets and Christian bank accounts. But precious little on worship so that in our culture, at least, I can't speak for every culture in the world, you find lots of Christian churches that do lots of things, but they don't worship God well. They don't worship God well. Now, Jesus is having a conversation with a woman. He had to go through Samaria who was confused. This woman was confused about worship, and Jesus brings some clarity in the conversation. I want to set that up. She was confused for two reasons. Her own spiritual baggage, number one. Number two, her own spiritual background. Let me explain. She came to the table, that is, to the conversation with Jesus Christ, having her own spiritual baggage. She had uh, a sin issue in her life that clouded her idea of God and thus worship of God. You see, she was a woman who got around town. She's had five husbands. And she's now living with a guy who's not her husband. She doesn't know who she's talking to. She thinks she's talking to just some Jewish guy who's thirsty, not knowing this is God who's reading her mind and knows her life. And so, 
He goes, go call your husband. She goes, I don't have a husband. And I, in reading this, see that she's having a very curt, smart Alec kind of a conversation with Jesus. When he said, hey, I'll give you living water. And she goes, oh, I'd like that. Then I, want, I don't have to make this long journey from town to the well and get this water. So give me a tap. Give me living water so I don't have to come here. So finally, Jesus just cuts right down through it and says, Go call your husband. I don't have a husband. You're right. You don't have a husband. Truth is, you've had five husbands, and the one you're now living with is not your husband. Listen to what she said. She responds by saying, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Duh. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. Jesus says something to her that causes her to change her whole approach. Go call your husband. You've had five husbands and you're now living with a guy who's not your husband. Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. She gets very spiritual all of a sudden. And she starts talking about worship. She brings it up. Well, our fathers worship on this mountain. You Jews say Jerusalem is the place you ought to worship. Why does Jesus do this? Why does he uncover her sin in the conversation publicly, not with other people around, but even in this out-in-the-open kind of a place? Why would she do that? Because she's wanting to get to the very issue of her life, the very heart of her life. Jesus wouldn't do this with everyone. I suppose with some people he would say, go get your tax returns. Bring them here. Let me look at them. And then he'd start telling them about how they cheated on their income tax. Or he might say, go get your internet history. And then he would rattle off all the websites that somebody has been frequenting and then probably the same reaction. Ah, I think you must be a prophet. Well, she waxes very spiritual and I'll tell you what she does. Is the conversation moves from general to very specific. He's dealing with her sin. And whenever there is conviction of heart, and you've noticed this in witnessing, there's often diversion. With conviction comes diversion. We want to divert the conversation from ourselves and focus on somebody else because God is messing with our hearts. And so a lot of times people will do this. You've noticed when they witness, they you witness to them and they're feeling the... Um, tug, the push, the pull, whatever it might be, the finger of the Holy Spirit, and they start asking you questions like, well, how come so many churches don't agree on this or that? And they'll try to divert the conversation. That's what she does here. He says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. So, She has a problem understanding God and the worship of God because of her own spiritual baggage, her own sin. 
She's thirsty. Everybody in the world has a thirst after spiritual things. They just don't know exactly what it is. They can't articulate it. They can't describe it. They don't know how to fix it. But they do. They've got it. Billy Graham is right. He said in most every crowd, most of the people in that crowd are very, very lonely. We have a thirst built in us to know God and to be filled with spiritual things, and we try to fill it with other things that can't satisfy. Drink of this water, you'll thirst again. I'm going to give you living water. Billy Graham said, the most devastating effect of sin is that we're blind to it. People are blind. They don't admit it. They don't know that they've got it. Heard about a husband and wife that pulled into a service station. Now, this was a long time ago when they used to check your tires and wash your windshield and check your oil. So we're talking the Middle Ages, right? The Dark Ages, perhaps, for some. And they were there in the service station, and the attendant was checking the tires, and under the hood, and the driver, the man, said, wash the windshield, please. And so the attendant did. The man became irate. Wash the windshield, it's dirty. So he washed it a second time. He yelled out and he said, can't you do anything right? The windshield is still dirty. You need to wash it again. At that point, his wife reached over, took her husband's glasses off his face, cleaned him up, put him back on, and the problem was fixed. It was his own problem, not the windshield or the attendant's problem. She had a problem that separated her from God. It was called sin. Second, the second problem. Not only did she have spiritual baggage, she had a spiritual background. Did you get her question? Our fathers, she said, worship in this mountain. You Jews say Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. It reveals that she had a spiritual side to her. She was loose, she was immoral, but she grew up with a spiritual side to her. She was a Samaritan. Now let me give you a little background so you'll get insight. And we'll close this off and we'll continue it in a few minutes. Zero in on what true worship is for us. This woman, being a Samaritan, had a history that caused animosity between her, her people, and the Jews. Jesus was Jewish. That was obvious by the way he dressed and his mannerisms and features. She was a Samaritan. Our fathers worship in this mountain. You Jews say Jerusalem is the place to worship. This is what's going on. Years before that, in 722 B.C., when the Assyrians came in and took captive the ten northern tribes of Israel, as was the Assyrian manner of captivity, they would take the people out of the land, leaving only the poorest of the poor. Then they would bring in other people, Assyrians, and other groups of people they had conquered and bring them back into this new land that they had conquered, repopulating that area with a whole bunch of foreign peoples who would marry some of those poor northern tribes, Jewish people in that area. So now the, the Jewish seed was corrupted by intermarriage children, more marriage children, so that eventually that race became known as Samaritans. As years passed on, the two tribes left 
Judah and Benjamin were taken captive not by the Assyrians, that empire was gone, the Babylonians took them captive, 586 B.C., deported them to Babylon. Seventy years later, they were allowed to come back. When they came back into the land and wanted to rebuild their temple, some of the Samaritans wanted to help rebuild their temple. The Jews said, no, you guys have been corrupted. We don't want anything to do with you or you with us rebuilding our temple. You're not pure in your worship. This caused a rebellion so that the Samaritans built their own rival temple in Samaria, had their own sacrifices in Samaria, believed in the first five books of Moses only, and from that point on there was a rift between Jew and Samaritan. So most Jews, when they wanted to go from Jerusalem to Galilee or Galilee to Jerusalem, never took the straight shot, which is right through Samaria. They went the long way around. It's like if you wanted to go to Los Angeles, you'd go through Las Vegas because you wanted to skip Anaheim and get into Los Angeles by going the long way around, perhaps. Or you go up to the high desert and around because you had such animosity between the people in Anaheim. There was such division that the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. So she had spiritual baggage, she had a spiritual background, and she's now curious about worship. Jesus said something revealing, and I'll leave you with this before we go to worship. You worship, she says to the Samaritan woman, he says, you worship what you do not know. You see, they only worship God based on the first five books of Moses, not the whole revelation of God. They had a very limited knowledge of God and they worshiped. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. It's in the present tense. God tonight, let's apply it, is looking for true worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And in just a few moments, I'm going to tell you what that means, worshiping Him in spirit and in truth. But know this. God called us apart to turn us into true worshipers. And if we are to be true worshipers, how true our worship should be of the living and true God. You see, a lot of people call something worship and it's not necessarily true worship. They feel very excited and very emotional and think great thoughts and experience great experience. The question is, is that what God wants? Because if God wants purely subjective worship, then He would just say, hey, whatever you're into, as long as you're sincere, but Jesus took and said that the Father is looking for worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. In other words, there is only two types of worship. Acceptable worship and what? Unacceptable. Those are the only two forms of worship. Anything that is not acceptable to God is unacceptable. Cain and Abel found that out. One's worship was acceptable, one's worship was not acceptable. 
In the Old Testament, in the giving of the law, in the tabernacle, in the temple, God set up acceptable worship, and everything else was not acceptable. So it is incumbent upon us to find out what the Father wants in terms of us worshiping Him if the very climax of, of redemptive history is that we might be worshipers of God. By the way, did you know that that's one of the best descriptions of a Christian? We worship God, Paul said in Philippians. We are those who worship God in spirit and have no confidence in the flesh. We live in a world that doesn't want to worship God. Doesn't want anything to do with God. So we are called out from the world to worship Him. And worship is more than lifting up a hand or singing a song. It is a lifestyle. Now we're going to go back to meditating and singing songs and worship, and then we'll finish off John chapter 4. But would you pray with me? Lord, what a startling discovery that woman was making when she was face-to-face with Jesus of Nazareth who had come to this ancient place where there was still a temple and there were many worshipers and they were worshiping God as they believed God to be. What a stark reality broke in on this woman when Jesus said, you don't know what you're worshiping. We know what we worship. Salvation is of the Jews. There was acceptable and unacceptable worship. And so tonight, you are seeking to find among us those who will give their entire lives to pleasing, to worshiping, to honoring you. That's why we were made as we read in Revelation, for thy pleasure all these things are and were created. So Lord, would you speak to our hearts during the next few moments? Since we're made for your pleasure, we would search our own hearts and ask, are we pleasing you? Are we about that business of pleasing you? Have we reduced life down to pleasing us? or surviving, or are we living a life that is honoring to you? So Lord, use this time to search us, as David said. Search us, try us, know our thoughts, know our ways. See if there's any wicked way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. In Jesus' name.